Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with undercover smoke jumper Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude, a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we semi-drunkenly wander around the topic of model-based inference and discuss how this perspective can help move us forward as a scientific discipline. We also discuss explosives, sniffing glue, homemade 787s, catfish noodling, the IKEA helpline, Calvin Ball, Ludwig Beethoven, Rube Goldberg, Hell's Half Acre, Denouement, and Intolerable Hypocrisy. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So my kids are doing all their online schooling right now, which I assume your kids are doing, right? They are indeed, as we speak. I was watching Quinn with one of his one of his classes is drama, so they're having to step back and do these theater exercises uh-huh. on a camera in front of everybody, which I love. One of my daughters is way into drama, and I was cooking dinner, and mm-hmm. down the hall I heard shouting of one end of a big <laughs> argument, and I didn't know she was online doing it, uh-huh. and I was thinking to myself, I'm going to have to look into that. <laughs> Right. One of the things I was imagining, I mean, there's some classes, right, that just can't lend themselves to doing this well. And I was thinking back to the classes that I took in middle school and high school. And I was, I remember I took woodshop. Do they even have woodshop anymore? I don't know, but I took woodshop. I loved woodshop. Horrible at it. My dad could build a house from the ground up, the electrical, the plumbing. When your parent uses phrases like, I'm going to be sweating copper this weekend, you know, like... (laughs) You know your parents legit. But we had all manner of tools and and I was allowed to use them at home, right? We had a we had a bandsaw and a radial arm saw and a lathe and drill press all this stuff. I don't know how I still have both eyes and both fingers, but I could just go play in our basement and build stuff. And I did, right? I did all the time. It was so much fun. I did less woodworking at home and more I was addicted to model airplanes. Oh. I had a slight difference in approach. I would modify the instructions where I could design it and fill it with explosives as I built. (laughs) Putting in the explosives is the easy part. You would put smaller firecrackers in the wingtips, you know, maybe an M40 in the fuselage. But the really hard part, and people seriously underestimate the difficulty of this, Uh is running the fuses because you Uh have to have a single shared fuse that runs throughout the aircraft. Uh (laughs) It really is a disturbing level of detail. Um, (laughs) Maybe it's a good thing. I'm passing none of this on to my children. Uh, (laughs) To my knowledge, they're not making explosives. I'm pretty sure they're not making explosives. But I don't even have all the tools that we used to have to build things, right? I'm worried that I'm turning kids out into the world who will have to call the helpline just to assemble their IKEA furniture. They don't think about the world in terms of models. Not only don't they buy model airplanes, they don't even think about that as a thing, Mm. right? I can still smell the glue. Sure is quiet out there. Too quiet. It's like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. We're dyed-in-the-wool modelers in many ways, right? We're dyed-in-the-wool in terms of building things, crafting things, even if they're not very good, right? And I was not a good woodworker, but I loved building things, right, and did it all the time. You did your model airplanes, 
and then blew them up. And we're still modelers. Your point is super well taken because my dad had a shelf that probably had 30 model tanks. He -hmm. was kind of obsessed with tanks and the history of tanks. And so I grew up where he would pull them down and he would compare them and and he would say, this is like a 1 to 30 representation or a 1 to 20. Mm -hmm. And I did grow up in my mind's eye woven into the fabric that models were simplifications of more complicated things that you could work with. And my girls don't have that. Seems to me that that's a really good topic for us to explore. In fact, I think it came up last week in some version uh, when Roy was talking about contrasting model-based reasoning or Mm model-based inquiry with null hypothesis significance testing. It was where I was struggling then, and I have to admit, I am struggling still a bit Mm -hmm. with the intersection between null hypothesis testing and model-based reasoning and the intersection between a frequentist perspective on that and a Bayesian perspective on that. And maybe that's something we can puzzle through now. What do we mean by model-based inquiry and Mm -hmm. how does that differentiate from a more traditional frequentist-based null hypothesis testing? My hankering is those two are much closer to one another than maybe people think about. I will also tell you my hankering is to call somebody. (laughs) 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 Do you know anybody in Hawaii or Australia? (laughs) I know a guy in New Zealand. Oh, let's give this topic some architecture because I have a feeling that we could, not that we have done so, that we could wander around a little bit randomly if we don't think about it in a structure. You mean moving from explosives to woodworking (laughs) to Uh memories about your dad growing up to time zones? Yeah, we would never do that. No, not at all. We're about Um, out of time anyway, aren't we? Yeah, thanks very much. Well, thank you, everyone. We really appreciate your time. (laughs) You tell me. Yeah, a natural starting point is what the heck is a model in the first place? All right, could I start with a preface that if you say all (laughs) models are wrong, I'm going to reach through the monitor and punch you in the face? (laughs) But okay. Two rules. Two rules. You can't go the chicka 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 thing that you do with your (laughs) whatever song... You try to do. That's rule number one for season two. (laughs) And rule number two is if you say all models are wrong, I'm going to reach through the monitor and punch you in the face. (laughs) So if we can establish those two things, Mm. yes, I can start this conversation. That's it. You've gotten so rigid in season two. All right. So what's a model? What do you, when, when someone says model, what do you think of in our world? A simplification of reality. Boom. Done. So there are two parts to that for me. I mean, they're, they're only like four words, so. Uh. <laughs> so it's a 50, you're at 50%. <laughs> yeah, but the simplification part and the reality part, right, or the real world part. Mm-hmm. I really like how you distilled it down to something that's very core. And I think people right off the bat forget that very point. I think they forget that the model is meant to represent something else, but it isn't the something else, right? Mm-hmm. It, by definition, It is a simplification of something that we care about in the real world. People come into my office and they talk about their model as though it is the thing. And it's not, right? It is a deliberate cutting of corners 
to get the useful information out and capture the essence of something. If I build a Model 787 in my backyard and mm-hmm. then fly 382 people to Charles de Gaulle, it's mm-hmm. not a Model 787. <laughs> it's a freaking 787. <laughs> It is the simplification of it that's the point. When my dad pulls Mm -hmm. down two tanks and puts them side by side when I'm a kid and he tells me, look at this one, the size of this relative to the size of that, it's a simplification. It's come up before. One of my very, very favorite authors is Cormac McCarthy. And he had a little prologue in one of his books. Some man was out in the desert and he found a scrap of paper and it was the corner of a map. He has a beautiful description of how an earlier king had wanted a map of the kingdom, but he wanted it with complete accuracy. And the only way to do that was to make it in actual size. And Mm -hmm. so the king had a map made in the size of the kingdom because he refused to give up accuracy. And now these scraps of paper were blowing around. I just Hmm. loved that image and loved that thought because when you think about it, the quintessential model is a map. That's a great image all the way around. We simply don't build 787s. We don't build life's two-scale maps, one-to-one maps. We build the one-to-twenties, but not even the one-to-twenties, right? Because we don't show all the fine detail. We show just the stuff that needs to accentuate the aspects that we think are important. And we cut corners. We cut away other things that we think are not going to be relevant for what we need to see, but without biasing the things that we need to see. We can build a model that has mountains that doesn't have rivers and still be an accurate representation of topology. And each of the models that we have is trying to help us to understand something. When I talk about modeling in my classes, I always start with uh, a couple of my favorite models. I don't mean in our own field or in applied fields. I just mean in life. One of my favorites that students have heard me talk about for many years is about Namazu, And Namazu is a giant catfish who causes earthquakes in Japan. So imagine you're in Japan and you're feeling an earthquake and you're wondering, well, what is the explanation for that earthquake? Well, the obvious answer is a giant catfish. And he lives under the islands and he is guarded by this god named Kashima. And it is his job to make sure that the catfish doesn't thrash around. And when he is not paying attention to what's going on, catfish starts thrashing. You get earthquakes in Japan. Right, that's a model. That is someone's attempt to explain phenomena that they observe, but where they don't quite understand the mechanism. I am trying to decide whether to attack you on a giant catfish being a model. Hmm. How is that a model? First, have you ever seen catfish noodling? I don't know what catfish noodling is. All right, so for those of you who are out there and are near a computer, go to YouTube and pull up catfish noodling. (laughs) It's something that you do in the deep south, and you wade into water, and you catch giant catfish with your bare hands. Many noodlers say to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. Second, how is a giant catfish, how is that not a fable? Well, I don't know why a fable can't be a model, and it only becomes a fable because of what you understand later. Models of intelligence, for example, with energy flowing up and down the cortex and going to all these different areas. Is that a fable? Is that a model? A lot of the things that start off as models ultimately become fables, but they're still placeholders 
for things that we don't understand, for mechanisms that we want to put in place to be able to explain the phenomena that we observe. The atom was at one time a model for what was going on, and it could have gone either way. And that was 2,000 years ago when Democritus put forth the model of an atom. Was that destined to be a fable? Or was that destined to be a reasonable representation of what happens? Luminiferous ether, which was a model for what the universe is filled with that allows light to pass through, because light surely couldn't pass through a vacuum. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Um, There's nothing to convey the light, like sound. Well, that became a fable. I don't know that I'm willing to make a distinction between fable and model, except in hindsight. First, when I form my next band, I'm going to call it Luminiferous Ether. (laughs) Second, I like that, and I like that there's a kind of a literary feel to it, because mine are much more mundane. I talk about a Model 747, I talk about a map, and then I talk about depression. Paraphrasing an Einstein quote is, models should be as simple as possible, but not simple. Mm -hmm. And so I think about multivariate statistics. That's what we all do. Anything that's more than a bivariate correlation is multivariate statistics. And the underlying foundational goal of multivariate statistics is, can we take a larger amount of information and distill it down to a smaller dimensional space without losing fidelity to the data. Mm -hmm. So can we simplify but not oversimplify? If we have 20 items in a correlation matrix, 20 times 19 divided by 2 is 190, there are 190 bivariate correlations among a set of 20 symptom measures. Can we distill that down to three factors, four factors? If there are 18 factors, have we really gained anything? If there's one factor, have we oversimplified? And that's what makes our day job so interesting. Mm -hmm. How can we simplify so that we can get our head around a complicated construct yet not oversimplify where we're doing damage in our ability to reproduce the characteristics of the data that we observe. I like your transition from models that we think of more broadly into the statistical realm. I will tell you, even models in the statistical world are, I'm not exactly sure what gets counted in a statistical model. You could define a statistical model as something that reproduces the data. Maybe that is a model. But think about it. Even a linear regression, we've got some X and Y points. If I want to predict kids' weights from their heights, X is X is height, Y is weight. If there were a beautifully linear relation between those two things, but not a perfect relation, then I need the intercept, I need the slope, and I need the error term. For me, one of the initial differentiations between what I think of as a mathematical model and a statistical model is that the statistical model introduces that stochastic term, introduces that randomness. A mathematical model would be more deterministic. It would say, y is a function of x. And we say, yeah, but there's some noise in there. So we need that error term to describe what's going on with the data. When I think about a statistical model, I don't Mm -hmm. think the inclusion or exclusion of a stochastic component is what makes it a statistical model. Hmm. Even if there were no stochastic component to an intercept and a slope, 
I would still call that a statistical model. And in my head, I equate Mm. statistical and mathematical models. So whether it's deterministic or stochastic, Mm. I think is less relevant than are we imposing a structure that we believe represents the data generating mechanism? Do we have a mathematical statement and a set of associated assumptions that said, this is what I believe is an approximation of the process that gave rise to my data? I would define a sample mean as Mm -hmm. a statistical model. I think that that is a representation of central tendency. You expand it to a standard deviation. You expand it to a covariance. Divide the covariance by a variance and you have a regression coefficient and we're off to the races. But maybe we're just pebble picking between mathematical being deterministic and statistical being stochastic. Maybe we are, but let me try and open it up a little bit and maybe say that a statistical model is what you want to include. And here's what I mean by that. If someone really cared about error variance as part of the system, then maybe they could call that part of the model. When you're actually doing the statistical testing that's associated with your model, we start weaving in other things like, what about normality? What about homogeneity of variance? Is that part of the model? Is that part of model broadly defined? Is that part of an inferential model? Is that part of a statistical model? And I think at the end of the day, my answer to that is... Well, it depends on what's important to you as part of your theory, the things that you care about modeling. I would say absolutely those are part of the model in my eyes. Because Mm -hmm. if you think about, well, if you have a distribution of a random variable and your statistical model is it's defined by a mean and a variance, Mm -hmm. and that that captures the full distribution of that variable, then you are assuming normality on Mm -hmm. that, that there are not higher order moments. I think the assumptions are critical in that. Again, I think maybe we're arguing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Whatever those underlying assumptions are, is you lay those out clearly defined. Maybe normality is an important one. Maybe it's not. I have very nearly every Calvin and Hobbes (laughs) cartoon memorized. If you gave me the first three panels, I could give you the last one. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've read them my entire life. And one of my favorites is Calvin Ball. And he makes up the rules as he goes. And they're absurd, unpredictable, random rules. But as soon as it's stated, it's a rule. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I see this as Calvin Ball. You can bring on any assumptions you want, Mm -hmm. but you have to state them and tell me what they are so that you can proceed from there. One of the things that kind of drives me crazy is that sometimes things that aren't really relevant to what we care about from a substantive standpoint creep into the model. And I agree, normality is part of the model. If we were articulating every single aspect of a data generating process, then distributions are going to be relevant. If we had Roy in this call today, you know, unlike last... We could last call week, him. We, it's, it's a little... <laughs> It's a little late. <laughs> it it's, would be 6.38? Yeah, that's oh, too late. Oh, come on, he's probably <laughs> that's up. too late in the morning to call. But, <laughs> but, but Roy would absolutely say that's part of the model, right? In fact, it's a part of the model that you have control over. You don't have to choose normality. You could choose any one of a variety of distributions, but it is your responsibility to do so, to fully articulate what you believe is the data-generating process. What drives me a little bit crazy is when that winds up driving the bus. Let's make it really, really simple. 
I want to do a two-sample t-test in a very traditional way. And my model, as I think about it as a substantive researcher, is that there is a difference in the population means. That's my model. My model does not care about variances. My model does not care about the shape of the underlying distributions. I only need to weave those things in to get out a damn t-statistic. So those are things that got tacked on by the lawyers before this thing rolled out to be able to map it onto a distribution. So it drives me a little bit crazy sometimes where I think, yes, that is a formal part of the full data generating process, but I only need that on the back end. So for me, there's a little bit of a gap between the substantive model, the way I think about the world, and all the fine print that's necessary to get it out to the testing and inference stage. So I must drive you nuts because the fine print is what I think is the statistical model. If you have some control group and some treatment group and you make a statement about some condition in the population, I personally would call that a theoretical model. You believe Mm. that if you teach children coping skills that they'll be able to handle unpredictable stress and it will Mm. decrease their anxiety. For me, the continuity, normality, and homogeneity of variance is the statistical model that allows you to bring empirical data to bear on the veracity of your hypothesized effect. I don't like it driving the bus. I think it drives the bus in the end. Okay, I'm not defending use. Mm -hmm. And I also see all the concerns about null hypothesis testing where you have a simple up and down vote. But if Mm -hmm. you say, is a two-sample t-test a statistical model? And my answer is an unambiguous yes. Mm -hmm. Because we're making clearly stated assumptions and conditions about the process that generated the sample data in my control group and in my treatment group so that Mm -hmm. I can adjudicate some a priori statement about my theoretical model at hand. I appreciate your distinction between your theoretical model and the actual statistical model. And you would probably agree that a lot of the stuff in the statistical model is stuff that you don't necessarily care about, but that is still all the pieces that need to be in place for it to be a fully-fledged statistical model. And indeed, I don't want a lot of that stuff, right? Yeah. Continuity, normality, homogeneity, and independence. Mm -hmm. It's like See, that to me is Calvin Ball crossed with Payne the Reaper. Mm-hmm. For me to get even a reasonably meaningful p-value on the probability that I would have observed a difference in my sample this larger or larger if there were truly no difference in the population, that's the cost of the ticket of the right the assumptions that underlie that. Now, one is the tail wagging the dog. And as you say, that becomes the driver. That's deeply concerning. Mm -hmm. And two, what is it compared to? So maybe this is a potential pivot point. Mm -hmm. It's an up and down vote on I observed a mean difference for my treatment of my control. And what's the probability I would have observed that in my sample had there been no difference in the population? That's very different than saying I am going to build a sequence of comparison models Mm -hmm. that differentially represent the data generating mechanism and I am using some principled approach going to try to identify what is the optimal model of all available models. I love everything you said and I think it is a really good pivot point. The first part of it though is that they have a lot of similarities Right, The null hypothesis significance testing world, which gets 
maligned all the time. I will malign it as well. But it really does have a lot of similarity with modeling as we think about it. There is a model under there. Just like you said, the mean is a model. A t-test has a model underlying it. When we, meaning you and I, and probably a lot of other people out there, learned about post hoc tests in ANOVA, things like Tukey's test and Newman-Cool's test and all of that kind of stuff for trying to ferret out where there are mean differences, there was usually a prescribed set of statistical tests that we would do, whether holding the mean comparisons to the same critical value or sequentially changing critical values, all of that. But another alternative that was written about by Dayton a number of years ago, I think it was a Psych Methods publication, was that we could really just be thinking about this in a different way. We could imagine that there is a world circumstance in which all the means are the same. We could imagine there is a world circumstance where only group one's mean or population one's mean differs from the other, uh, let's say the other three that are identical. And we could imagine a whole bunch of different configurations there where only one mean is different from the others or they're two and two, etc where we could articulate the space of models and let the data help decide. It's our job to lay out the scope of what's possible and rule out the scope of what is unreasonable. And we could be wrong in doing that. But when we get those models on the table, a researcher could say, having only population one have a different mean from the others is not something that anybody would ever believe is reasonable for this particular space. Well, the Tukey test didn't know that. The Newman-Cools test didn't know that. But if we take a model-based approach where we lay out potentially competing models with respect to patterns of mean differences, we can lay those out, that which is reasonable, and then use some criteria to make a decision among those models. It is similar to when we were talking about factor analysis last year where exploratory isn't really exploratory and confirmatory isn't really confirmatory. I think it's very similar here. I completely agree that a two-sample t-test is a statistical model. So if you're talking about model-based reasoning, Mm -hmm. I do think that a t-test falls under that rubric. However, I also believe that testing a series of nested structural equation models using multi-parameter walled tests Mm -hmm. is also based in null hypothesis testing. Is what is the probability I would have observed a difference in my test statistic this large or larger if the models were truly equivalent in the population? And so I think what I embrace in this setting, just be honest with yourself. Have a clear statement of what it is that you're doing and what your motivation is. And that a t-test is a model and a multi-parameter walled test is a null hypothesis. And then it becomes about the principled use of those methods. How do we use these in a thoughtful and organized way to move us forward as a science? The first thing that I will underscore is that how you think about it to start really is critical. And I gave an example where I said you could imagine two populations, one with the same mean and one with different means. If we want to start building it out to mirror the t-test, sort of, we could now have variances that are the same, and we could impose normal distributions on them. And then the only differentiation between these two populations would be a mean difference. 
Now we have the question of how do we make a choice between these two models? And I think null hypothesis significance testing makes that choice in one way. And model-based thinking can make choices statistically and does make choices statistically, like using a multivariate walled test like you described, or as we talk about likelihood ratio tests, etc. But we can also use other criteria too, right? Information criteria and other things to be able to make these kind of adjudications as well. But I think it all starts with, and this is what I think gets lost, thinking about what the competing models are. And that's what I would like to do. I would like to think that I do when I teach people. Can you give me just a minute here? Because I'm going to run out back and dig up John Stuart Mill again. <laughs> again? The cause precedes the effect. The cause is demonstrably related to the effect. And what makes our job fun is there are no plausible alternative explanations. Mm-hmm. And I think, if I am understanding what you're saying, is that's the issue at hand. What are your competing models? Joe Rogers has a really wonderful paper on all of these issues. Was it 2010? Mm-hmm. American 11, Psychologist? 10. 2010, American Psychologist. I don't have it in front of me, but it's something about a quiet revolution. Mm -hmm. And he puzzles through all of these issues that we're chatting about. And so I would recommend, if you're interested in this stuff, to look at Joe's paper. Mm -hmm. Could we call Joe? Nah, he's only one time zone away. That's not interesting. Nah, never mind. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's see. I was digging up John Stuart Mill. All right, so Mm -hmm. plausible alternatives. Mm -hmm. So how do you, instead of just setting up a straw man of, right, it goes back to, we were talking with Roy, as uh, cowardice and bravery. Mm -hmm. It's always hard for me when I'm teaching undergrad to say, we have this null hypothesis is the treatment group is equal to the control group. And our alternative hypothesis is it's not equal. Mm -hmm. Okay, of limited utility, I'm willing to admit Mm-hmm. Fisher only wanted the null. Neiman and Pearson said the null doesn't make sense until we also have an alternative. We've established early on in the podcast that I am just intolerable to interact with because of my hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, I am not a fan of power, but I am of type 1 and type 2 error. Hmm. I understand there's some inconsistency in that view. Uh... <laughs> I, I am willing to admit mm-hmm. that. Hmm. But this goes back to our early, early episode on power where I groused a bit about the use of power in modern day applications. I think I raised then what I'll raise now, which is the power of what? Mm-hmm. Talk to me a bit about what you mean by the competing models. I like to think about competing explanations for the way that the world could be working. And at the level of a t-test, there are actually many potential competing models. If our goal is to test the differences between means, for example, between two groups, assuming that there are no other explanations for that potential difference, that's the third thing from the exhumed body, then the competing models might be one where the means are the same, one when the means are different. It might also be one where the means are the same, one where the means are different, crossed with ones where the variances are the same and one where the variances are different crossed with different types of distributions. And all of a sudden, in a factorial kind of way, even for something as simple as assessing a mean difference, you can make a part of your model all kinds of different aspects. And the things that help to govern what are the salient aspects that help you to generate the different models are 
either competing beliefs that you have or competing beliefs that your literature has or just plain areas of ignorance for you where you're saying, I don't know about that. And what we talked about last week with Roy is that we are generally very cowardly when it comes to specifying alternatives as being free parameters as opposed to fixed parameters. We're very cavalier with zero, but we don't go out on a limb. We could have competing models, even in the test of mean differences, that the mean differences is five points between these two groups. That could be a competing model. So using your state of understanding of your own theory, of your own literature, what other people have articulated, and where there are points of, I really wish I could know more, pretty soon, before you know it, you have many, many competing models. And the focus isn't just on this parameter or that parameter, but for me, it's really understanding a system as a whole. And that's where we start pulling back from the tiny model where only the means differ across them to entire systems, these whole structural models that you and I deal with on a day-to-day basis. Let's say that I have a multiple indicator latent factor with multiple factors, and I want to know if there are correlated residuals that are consistent with theory and would help me better replicate the characteristics of the data. And I have model A where there are no correlated residuals. I have model B where I introduce five correlated residuals. I do a five degree of freedom likelihood ratio test. I have a null hypothesis that says in the population, the models fit equivalently. Mm -hmm. And I have an alternative hypothesis in which they do not fit equivalently. And I get a p-value on my five degree of freedom chi-squared that says, what is the probability that I would observe a difference in model fit this large or larger if there were truly no differences in the population? How is that different than a two-sample t-test? It's not. So what do you think the core feature of proceeding as a science from a model-based perspective is? It probably includes a number of components, but I will also say that it's not so clear-cut because I don't think that null hypothesis significance testing is some other beast. I think it just adopts a frame of reference. Model-based inference for me is a process. Part of it is how we think. I don't think of it in terms of a statistical test. I think of it as representing a system. So we go through these phases. You might even go through these phases with people on the whiteboard in your office when a substantive researcher comes in and you want to help that person think through things. So we go through this phase of model articulation where we try to think of what are all the salient variables that are operating here? How do we think they're going to be interfacing with each other? We make choices, choices of linearity, other kinds of choices as we connect them as we have those variables loading on their respective factors, for example. We construct the model. We wind up evaluating that model. We might compare multiple models, and that's what I am a big fan of. I don't like to go in with a single model and say it is or it isn't. I like to have potential alternatives. It really is just a way that you think about approaching the world. You don't think of it in terms of testing specific things. You think about it as what is the best salient representation of the things we care about. And in the end, that might be addressed by something that's the equivalent of a t-test, or it might not be addressed by something that's the equivalent of a t-test. When I ask someone, so what are you working on? And they say, oh, I'm doing a multiple regression, right? When that comes out of it, it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what you're working on. 
tell me what you are thinking about. What are the variables, how they relate? Tell me how they represent the world that you have and, and the thought process that you go through. I think that is lost. That's what I think about when I think about model-based reasoning, actually thinking about the processes and not the individual parameters. I completely agree, and I think that it's a mindset, and I think that's what's really important. Are we doing no hypothesis testing or are we doing modeling? Yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. we are. We're doing both. They go hand in hand. I think it's a framework for thinking about the world, and I think you articulated that really nicely. Not only then reconciling the statistical models with one another, but of course the critical component is reconciling the statistical model with the theoretical model. And how do those two talk to one another? I often feel like when people say, I compared several competing models, the competitors were all straw men. Mm -hmm. There is no effect of the treatment. There are no gender differences. Mm -hmm. Think about poor John Stuart Mill in my backyard. (laughs) By the way, Mm -hmm. did you know Beethoven is buried in my backyard? And the other day I went into the crypt and he was sitting at his desk and he had an eraser and he was erasing all of his musical scores. (laughs) And I said, Ludwig, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm decomposing. (laughs) Take a breath, man. Take a breath. All right. Anyway. So I have a diatribe I will go on and I will try not to hear... I think we as the social sciences writ large, we have done ourselves a disservice by trying to draw too many parallels to, for lack of a better term, the harder sciences. I am a huge fan of Karl Popper and strong falsificationism. One of my favorite books of all time is Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Mm -hmm. Boyle's Law, Einstein's Gravitational Lens, Copernican Theory, These are hugely important things. I think we do ourselves a disservice by saying we have the equivalent of a gravitational lens. We're studying risk and protective factors with children who do and don't have an alcoholic parent. We're studying how can we close the achievement gap in elementary schools. We have real problems, real issues that is individual variability. One of my favorite quotes from Dave Kenny is human freedom resides in the residual term. Mm -hmm. People are people, and that we need to build a set of competing models to try to understand these incredibly complicated systems. I wrote a paper a while ago where I used space elevators in the title, Mm -hmm. and I told a story in the paper where I had a buddy who worked in nanotechnology and was working on a nanocord to tether an elevator in geosynchronous orbit. And he asked me what I was doing. And I told him about studying depression in children over time. And he laughed and he said that he had the easier problem. (laughs) And I so appreciated his reaction because in a way that's right. How do you study individual variability and developmental trajectories of depressive symptomatology throughout childhood and into adolescence? And how do you build a set of competing models, not where you're trying to adjudicate which one is right versus which one is wrong, but which one is more useful for some set of children Mm -hmm. and maybe some useful for another subset of children? I think that I personally and maybe a lot of other people out there as well, 
really do a disservice to our students as they progress through their statistics courses in how we communicate with them. What I mean by that is when I get people in my structural equation modeling course, we just talk differently. We talk about models and competing models and choosing models and criteria for choosing models. That kind of language is something that I introduced in the introductory courses But I'll tell you, I didn't hammer it home as much as I would like to have. And so what I find myself doing later on is using a language, using a communication system, using sort of a scientific framework that we should have been using all along, I would say, that I should have been using all along. And so what happens is people come to their modeling course and they have to realign themselves and think differently. And it's a way that comports beautifully with the way they think about their worlds, but they have to shake off all the damage that I and others maybe have done to them before they get there. I don't know if you experience that at all or even guilty of that. Completely. And Mm -hmm. I, too, am teaching SEM this semester, and you and I have talked on prior episodes of this whiteboard problem, as you you had the funny story of drawing the variables up with a permanent Sharpie, (laughs) and then all of us can draw different representations of that parameter space Mm -hmm. that, to varying degrees, are consistent or inconsistent with theory and the underlying data-generating mechanism that gave rise to our sample data data. Even in my teaching, when I approach it in that way, I do agree that I presented in an oversimplification is you have model A and model B and model C, and you do some multi-degree of freedom LRTs, and then you pick the one that fits best. And then you go for a run, cook dinner and start working on your next paper. That's not really model-based inference. Right, A cornerstone of what you're advocating for is replicability and accumulated knowledge. Right, That's another cornerstone of this, is this notion of a one-and-done. Well, I looked at the mediating effects of stress and negative affect from parental alcoholism to drug use, and that was the hypothesized model. The RMSEA was less than 05. The CFI was greater than 0.95. So we're done and done, and we're off to the next thing. Mm-hmm. This is one representation of a complicated space. Someone else needs to offer another representation. Somebody needs to offer another representation. And then you start getting into the Frank Schmidt, Jack Hunter, meta-analysis, accumulation mm-hmm. of knowledge Those guys did remarkable work in this area way early on about how do we build that accumulation. Paul Meal has that very famous paper where he talks about the soft sciences lacking that cumulative knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of Kuhn's scientific revolutions of there's an accumulation of knowledge that you begin to gather together discrepancies that build and build and build. And that was his paradigm shift, was you had to say, okay, this doesn't hold anymore. Now we have to move to a different way of thinking. Maybe two competing interesting aspects are, one, that when we do build on what has gone before us, we often do so in what you might have called a cowardly way when we were talking about this previously, in that... If previous work has shown a relation between a couple of things that hovers right around 0.4 for a particular population, we still, in the next model we build, are not typically courageous enough to set that value, 
right? Or even maybe even to specify a prior uh, if we want to think about it in a more Bayesian framework. So we often build on our theories in a Rube Goldberg kind of way, maybe. Mm. We don't usually just switch from, oh, let's take the Earth out of the middle and put the Sun in the middle. We are all about Ptolemaic processes and putting epicycles on things. You know, this model needs Mars doing these loop-to-loops over here, and it needs Venus doing these loop-to-loops over here. We rarely, radically rethink things until someone comes along and really has just done some pure whiteboard thinking from the start. So one point is that we're often not courageous enough to take information from the past and encode it in very formal ways. Lavalier was a French mathematician, and he said that if the model of the solar system is correct with the sun in the center, there should be a mass at this particular point in the sky at this particular time of year. They turn the telescopes toward that point, and discovered Neptune. And the phrase is, is Neptune was discovered at the tip of a pen. Mm -hmm. We don't have a theory that would put Neptune in that place at that time for the kind of things that we do and we study, but we should take those risks nonetheless. I love what you said. And something else that you said previously that I wanted to elaborate on as my second point And that is the role of individual differences in the models that we have. And I don't mean individual differences in terms of, hey, look, people vary on X. Hey, look, people vary in the Mm. error term. I mean the relations themselves. Every study is done in a context. And even if we are model-based thinkers rather than hypothesis testers, you know, you come up with that point four from a previous study and... On the one hand, I said, are you brave enough to code that in? But the other side of that is, why would we ever do that? In fact, why wouldn't we think that that particular relation itself is a function of other things, of contextual components, of other individual processes and elements that are going on? And so in many ways, what I would like to see is that we move toward models with, I think what Bayesians would call hyperparameterization, where we have all of the parameters in our model, but we don't just think that they're the same for everybody and we're moving towards some population value, or we don't even necessarily think that they differ simply as a function of which group you're in, but rather that they themselves might differ in some functional fashion of other characteristics. And I would love to see our models move toward that acknowledgement of individual differences all the way down into the different relations that we would specify in our model. I would really like to hope that we move toward that, that treatment effects are not the same for everybody, that X influencing Y is not the same for everybody. And I'd like to see our models evolve to be able to accommodate that in a more mature way. A thing I think that brings us to, and holy cow, we're all over hell's half acre in this conversation, (laughs) between Lavalier and Mm -hmm. Beethoven and Kuhn is ideographic and nomothetic dimensions of thinking about in our field. So Mm -hmm. we established early on that I actually don't know very much about statistics, but I have mnemonics. So ideographic is an individual focus. How do you remember that? It's an idiot, right? Mm -hmm. You think about, oh, he's an idiot. Okay, ideographic is an individual. Nomothetic is no more. 
I don't know more. Do you want some more sample? No more. Nomothetic. <laughs> no more is the group. And so ideographic is the individual. Nomothetic is the group. Just remember, idiot and no more. So we talk a lot about where do you fall between those two dimensions. Peter Molinar has done a lot of really wonderful work on this, and he has a paper in measurement. Is that it or something? It's back 15 years ago, right. maybe about a manifesto. I remember that was in it. But I wrote a response to that. I made an argument in there is that balancing the ideographic nomothetic dimension, you also have to balance internal and external validity. And so if I really want to know about your daughter, Sydney, I want to know what are Sydney's passions, what are Sydney's enthusiasms, what are Sydney's fear? That's a purely ideographic approach, right? As I, I want to know everything there is to know about your amazing daughter. Very high internal validity on what I know about Sydney. Very low in external validity. What do I know about young women who are like Sydney? Well, very little because I don't have anybody other than Sydney. And so you start to say, well, what if I take a sample of young women that are like Sydney? All right, you start moving off of that idea graphic into the middle of the playing field and then you keep going all the way to nomothetic where you take all the sydneys of the world and now you have what is the average sydney like but where's sydney now we've totally lost sydney mm -hmm. and so i think this model-based thinking and the respect for individual variability is where on the playing field are we in terms of ideographic nomothetic perspectives of science the last part that you made about the nomothetic reminds me of a very nice popular book called The End of Average by Todd Rose, where he talks about how the average in the end represents nearly nobody and gives a lot of wonderful anecdotes about how an average was used to make decisions, but in fact it made very poor decisions because of the individual differences that people have around that. So when we think about that ideographic and nomothetic continuum, I really want the nomothetic models to not just allow for the individual differences around those, but to understand them and to be able to model those things. And that, to me, is where I hope our models really are moving. And not missing an opportunity to give another dad joke is the two statisticians playing darts and three darts are thrown at the top half of the board and three are at the <laughs> bottom and they high-five each other for hitting the bullseye. <laughs> So what's an exit strategy? What would you say is your denouement to this discussion? So for me, I would say the take-home message is just encouraging people to think like model-based reasoners, to not think about things in terms of the statistical tools that they're going to bring to bear. Don't think about things in terms of the hammer you're holding in your hand or the screwdriver you're holding in your hand, but think more about what you're trying to build or what you're trying to understand better. We haven't gone into tons of details here. We haven't gone into how do we formally adjudicate among models, and there are different ways of doing that, statistical ways, informational ways, and those are interesting in and of themselves, but I don't think we need to get all the way down into the weeds. There are also very important issues around models that might be equivalent to the ones that you're testing that we don't even know about off the top of our head. And there's wonderful literature sort of seeded by Lee and Hirschberger that's worth a look if you are drunk enough or brave enough. I'm not sure which one I would choose. 
But I really want people to approach everything from the lens of the world that they're trying to understand, then start thinking about the analytics that you're going to bring to bear to be able to make selections among those particular models. My recommendation is don't think about the model, think about a model. And think about how does your model fit into what we know thus far, and how does your model serve as a pebble that we can throw into the pile of future models and thinking about trying to build a empirically based reasoned argument toward understanding these really important things that all mm-hmm. of us study and reconciling the theoretical model with the statistical model with the test at hand and then thinking about some of the stuff that Roy talked about last week is it's not just multi-parameter likelihood ratio tests, but we have this whole new stable of things in information criterion-based inferences, Bayes factors, and going in eyes wide open, how do we approach a complicated system of individuals within their environment and try to simplify that in some way so that we understand the mechanisms at hand, but have not oversimplified that to the point that we're going to mislead ourselves in what we believe these underlying mechanisms to be. How do you want to exit out of this? Last night I was cooking dinner and I was sitting at the counter and I made out some notes to myself. We've been talking for 93 minutes. (laughs) I have not looked at the notes once, Mm -hmm. which does make one wonder why I make notes. (laughs) I was skimming them to see if there was anything I wanted to say and buried in my notes in my wife's handwriting, unbeknownst to me, (laughs) is recognize your wife's contributions to your career. So if I'm going to draw anything from my notes is Mm -hmm. I would like to recognize Andrea's contributions to my career. Here, 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 here. So I got nothing, man. What is an exit strategy? Just think about approaching your science with the lens of model-based reasoning. What is your theory? What are those assumptions that you're putting on to try to organize your empirical data in some way and embracing that you have not discovered the model but that given your application, you have a model that is a representation for the characteristics of those who you studied, and that is your contribution to the broader cumulative science as we all move forward as a field. So go out there and be model citizens, people. Oh, can I edit that out? (laughs) Come on, it's not bad. Really? If you let me keep the Beethoven joke, I'll let you keep that. We'll see. We'll see. Okay, we'll see. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for tolerating us. I know we were all over the place, but you get what you pay for. All right, everybody. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they prefer to get their nerd therapy, and leave us a review. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a text or a voice message. Finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch at Redbubble.com, a mask, a t-shirt, the Jiffy version of which is modeled on Twitter by Junior Q Potter, Oliver Felt, a mug, stickers, buttons, and the ever-popular hoodie, as modeled so stylishly on Twitter by Andrea Howard and at Data Dodger Rose. And remember, 
All Redbubble proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to support remote access and low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude. We're like a mullet, reasonably well-organized on the front end, but who knows what's going on by the time you get to the back end. Today's episode is brought to you by the Darwin Awards, an accolade our students continue to hope that we will win, and by Sandwich Estimators. We don't know what the punchline is. It's just funny to say Sandwich Estimators. And finally, by Positive and Negative Skew, yet another thing in statistics that you remember by thinking, hey, that's exactly the opposite of what common sense would dictate. This is most definitely not NPR. absolutely perfect for this photo shoot. Have you ever modeled before? I don't actually know. There's a lot I can't remember right now. Hand modeling, swimsuit, beer, basic product shots, any of this ring a bell? Nope. I was just wandering around lost on King Street when your assistant asked me to come upstairs here. Ooh, is that a real bathtub? Cool. Right. Well, here's how it works. It's really quite simple. You pose, I shoot. You pose, I shoot. Give it a try. Sure. Smile. How do you feel? Great. You're a star. I'm a star. Now you're sad. I'm sad. More pouting. Like this? Yes. Now you're happy. Happy. Now you're on the rug. Rug? Now you're rolling around on the rug. I am? Make love to the camera. Huh? Show us your two tongues. Come on. Wait, what? Who's a beautiful furry baby? Who's a beautiful furry baby, huh? Um...